Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. Please welcome Reed Hastings. Okay, I do want to have watched Netflix in the last seven days. Last seven days, half. Okay. You guys all paying or sharing passwords? We got, that's it. None of that. (laughs) Thank you all. Thank you. Um, How many people have watched a Netflix original movie in the last seven days? War Machine. Smaller group. Let's, Let's start there. Okay. Um, movies, you've, you've been doing your own movies for a couple years. You're ramping up now. I read uh, you're going to spend about $400 million on four movies that are coming out this year, okay. give or take. You can never believe what you read, but go on. Sometimes. Um, why are you getting into movies now? Why do you start with TV and then get into movies? And what's different about movies and TV for you guys? So for a long time, uh, we only had other people's shows that they had launched, uh, like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, great shows, but um, we were not the originating network. Um, And then we started to expand into original series, of course, first with House of Cards and continuing to to grow now with a new show, Glow, in another month. Um, And along the way, we realized TV shows and movies are actually very similar in many ways. Their difference is the theatrical distribution, but in terms of the entertainment, and that we should uh, feel comfortable getting into original movies and doing those in in a big way. Uh, and so that's what we're underway. So I know it's not easy, but it seemed like getting into TV shows was pretty easy for you guys. So you threw a bunch of money at some stuff, and a bunch of things seemed to be popular. The people seemed to like them. We never know the real numbers. They seem critically acclaimed. Movies does not seem like it's had the same trajectory for you. In a shareholder letter recently, you said, actually, some of our movies have not worked out well. You even named one. You normally never say something didn't work out. So what, why is the learning curve different for you with movies? Well, I think if you have the perspective that we're just throwing money at things and then some of the work, it probably does seem a gross bloggy term. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know that movies are that much harder. We just have chosen first to do serialized entertainment because you get into a show and then you get excited and addicted by it. And binge viewing is a very novel thing that we pioneered. Um, and there's no movie equivalent. Um, so you watch a movie in the middle of the night, that's great. Right. It's basic on demand. But think for, for the original shows that... <laughs> The first series we did, things like Breaking Bad, it was transformative to be able to go back to the beginning and binge view it. So we concentrated on where we had the most competitive advantage, that's binge viewing, things that we're binging. Um, and then second is movies, where you don't get the binge view aspect, but you can watch them anytime. Is there something about the fact that it's a two-hour movie and you watch it and you're done that, that changes the consumer's expectation for what they're getting? Maybe if it's a show and you get two not-so-great episodes in a row, you're willing to keep going because you're, you're binging three or four, or you, do, you think roughly they're the same experience? 
you know, at different times, uh, depending on what mood you're in, you're interested in movies versus television shows. Um, the great thing about TV shows, you've got more time as the creators for character development. Um, and so you can, um, you know, get to know the characters more. Um, but movies are great, too. So you're drawing, a, you know, a, a firm line between them, and, and we look at them more fluidly. Um, I think it's fair to say we've been, you know, uh, amazingly successful on series, and we're just getting started on movies. And the movie you're referring to, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, uh, didn't get viewed by as many people relative to its big cost. Uh, why, why point that out? You never sort of say this thing didn't work out. You always say this thing is an amazing show. People are subscribing to it. It's a huge hit. I would say we're always trying to be, you're talking about an investor letter, we're always trying to be candid with investors, and we haven't had you know, any significant misses on the series yeah. side. So that was one that we did and talked about, but not, not inconsistent with the way we operate with investors. So the kind of movies you're making right now seem to be this middle ground. Hollywood does blockbusters, usually with the superhero, and they do some very cheap things, um, like Get Out. Um, you're in this middle ground, it looks like. You're spending around $100 million a movie. It's, sometimes it has a star like Brad Pitt in it. It's the kind of movies that Hollywood doesn't seem to be making right now. Are you making those movies intentionally because that's open to you? You know, I would say we're making, or because they're not doing it. We, we've got movies like Siege of Jadoville um, that were much smaller and have been very popular. Uh, and we've got movies at the high end like Bright coming out um, in the winter with Will Smith. That's a really big budget. We're talking about The Irishman, trying to figure that one out. Um, Martin Scorsese, which would be out in two years, which would be a really big movie. So I would say we're willing to play both at the high end, the middle, uh, the low end. We buy lots of great films out of Sundance. Right, but you're not making you're not making ten pole movies, right? Yet. Is that an ambition? Do you think that one day you're going to be making, you know, Well, it's a tentpole that has tremendous commercial success. So, you know, you're thinking about it in budget terms, but that doesn't correlate to reception always. So we want uh, films that everybody wants to watch that become cultural moments. Um, and that's what you might call a tentpole. And maybe it has a $50 million budget or a $5 million or a $100 million. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this word. Maybe you do. Can? Con? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you we did. both got, you don't, you don't pronounce the S. Okay, good. We got um, I went to University of Wisconsin. We didn't learn that. Um, you got some grief there yeah. uh, for one of your new films. Do you want to you explain what happened there? Sure. Uh, two of our films um, got into the competition. The French theater owners said, wait, um, you can't let Netflix in um, because they're not distributing in French theaters. Um, they're only distributing on the French Netflix service, which has been very popular in France. Uh, and they are roughly half the board seats of the film festival. So they got the festival director to threaten to pull us out, which got a bunch of press. And then he kept us in because its artistic integrity should be the trumping principle. But it basically was very messy for them. Did you know you were getting into that fight? Did you know this was going to No, we, we got in the two, the two films, um, which are amazing films, Meyerowitz Report and Okja, um, got in on their own, on the artistic merit, um, as just normal movies. And, uh, but then, the, again, sometimes the establishment is clumsy when they try to shut out the insurgent, and then the insurgent role is to play that up, yeah, you uh, put, which you, we did. You, you posted that on Facebook. You said the ranks are closing. There we go. There we go. It's like um, basic social media. I mean, what's the bigger issue for you, fighting with the, the jury at Cannes or Cannes or fighting with distributors. You'd like, to, you'd like your movies to be available in theaters as well, right? Well, so we don't, don't really want to fight with anyone. What we're trying to do is uh, have great movies and have them be shown everywhere. But where someone picks a fight with us, you know, that gets a lot of attention, which then brings attention to the... So you don't mind, Oak you're Jack. happy to have that fight. 
Yeah, it's, it's been fantastic for us. I mean, and most importantly, fantastic for Okja and Meyerowitz Report, um, you know, which are small films that are very artistic and uh, they'll get a lot more um, awareness. And then meanwhile, what do you tell directors who make movies in Hollywood who still have an expectation or hope that they're seen on a big screen? I know that technically you can see most of these movies on a screen mm -hmm. somewhere in America so they can qualify for an award. But you hear directors saying, well, I really wish people watched this thing on a big screen before they watched it at home. Yeah, I mean, we're in a transition period where the movie theater chains around the world um, are not willing to allow consumers to choose, but eventually they will. And so big movies will come out and they'll be on Netflix and on Amazon and on many other services and also in the movie theaters. And if you want a communal experience with a bunch of friends, you would go out to the theater like you go out to a restaurant, even though you know how to cook. So it's like not that dramatic. You know how to use seamless. It, there we go. So uh, you know the movie theaters have had this exclusive windowing system, and that's breaking down. And you, you think it's inevitable that that breaks down? Absolutely. Yeah. Do be ultimately consumer choice is a very powerful force, and so you'll be able to watch movies either at home or in the movie theater. Um, but for Netflix, you know, again, we're mostly focused on how do we do entertainment that you feel like you got to watch and you know, stay up late at night. Can we pull back a bit? Um, you guys started streaming just about 10 years ago. Yep. Um, so prior to that, you were sending out movies on DVDs. Licking uh, a lot of envelopes. Licking yeah. a lot of envelopes. When you started 10 years, and now you're at 100 million subs, you're in almost every country in the world. Yep. How far, did you project out? Did you say, I, I think in 10 years, we're going to be at 100 million subs and we'll be in every country in the world, basically outside of China? Or how much of this did you see coming? You know, the beautiful thing about Excel is you can do fill right. So you put a, a growth rate in there and you go fill right. And then you see, wow, those are big numbers. But uh, it, it's not more planful than that. How much, so. It's good. The truth. So there's no point in me asking about your 10 year plan, but, but what is that experience of growing over those 10 years and basically creating a new kind of business? Uh, how does that inform how you're thinking about the next year or two years? Um, you know, what, what we're really focused on is how do we push the creative boundaries um, and doing shows that uh, bring people together, are exciting, sometimes they polarize people. Uh, and again, this is a fairly U.S.-centric audience, but most of our growth now is international. We're about 50-50 um, in terms of memberships. And if you look at the big internet companies like YouTube and Facebook, they're 80, 85% international and 15% domestic. So we have a long way to go international. So we just did our first Turkish original, uh, first commission. Uh, we've got a series out of Germany coming, The Dark, that's uh, science fiction and, and is very exciting. And we think it's gonna get a lot of attention. We had a show uh, four months ago um, that we did in Brazil, 3%. And so, you know, really the big focus is on international, all of those productions, and then trying to get, make it easier to share and consume around the world. Right, so sometimes when you guys talk about international, you'll say, oh, I mean, the 3% it's Brazil, but it turns out people like it all around the world. Is that the ambition that you make something that originates in Turkey and Brazil, but we watch it in California or New York? Or, or are you thinking, no, these are all specific countries and specific territories, and we've got to really work to give them stuff that only someone in Turkey wants to see? No, I think there's much more connectivity, at least amongst the internet segment. You know, we're not serving the whole audience, we're serving those people on the internet. And there's more awareness of other cultures and interests. And so, you know, we've got a series in India, Sacred Games, on a, on a book. And hopefully that will, ca will carry. Now, it may not be the biggest thing in the U.S., but it will be bigger than it would have been. 
And so it's very much produced locally and then shared around the world. And in some of these countries, and, and or like the EU, France in particular, have restrictions. They say, you've got to give us a certain amount of French content. Um, do you imagine those rules break down and go away, or do you think that's just part of doing business for the foreseeable future? Um, because of the EU single market, it's really on a whole European market basis. So there are restrictions that European content has to be uh, brought, but it's not French specific. Um, and I think lots of uh, countries, you know, have things like that. But they want to make sure that their stories are told. And so we're producing uh, more and more titles again in France, in Germany, in India, in Japan. Uh, and so that's the the big effort, which is, you know, it's challenging to build great shows around the world. You're spending a lot of time and, and money and uh, effort in India. Yep. Amazon is also doing the same thing. Are those yep. two things connected? Uh, no, I would say, I mean, Amazon and us are two drops of water in an ocean. You know, most viewing, uh, I mean, YouTube viewing is probably 100 times us in India. I mean, YouTube is incredibly popular, and Hotstar and many other services. So both Amazon and us uh, have, you know, little footholds, um, and that's exciting. Uh, in other markets like the U.S., um, you know, we're both very strong. So it varies all over the world. When you guys launched, you did a big international announcement about a year and a half ago at CES. Right. Uh, you did basically, again, everywhere except, I don't know, North Korea and China. And everyone said, when are you going to get to China? And you said, we think we're going to get there. We're working with them. I don't know, maybe a year later, you said, actually, China's not going to happen. What, what happened and what, what did you get wrong and, or what changed? Well, we've always hoped to be able to operate our service everywhere in the world, but it became increasingly clear to us that that was going to be difficult for regulatory governmental reasons in China. And but so, did something change on the Chinese end, or did you guys assess it wrong going I think in? we probably assessed it wrong. We, we had our natural optimism, which slowly got beat down. Um, and uh, then we said, look, we got the whole rest of the world. Let's focus on that, and let's just take our content and license it to, uh, to Baidu, to Tencent, to Ali. How good are you guys about saying we got this wrong? I mean, I, I, with Quickster, right, there was a period where- We get a lot wrong, so we, we got, got a lot of practice. You got that one wrong, and then you said we got it wrong after yeah, yeah, a while, yeah. in China, that's not as consequential. Uh, does it get easier or harder as you grow and get bigger and become more successful to go, oh, this isn't working, we gotta pull the plug quickly, or we're gonna make this work? You know, it's a small manifestation of our commitment internally to honesty with each other between the employees. So, uh, no, we, we call things failures all the time and we deal with it. And so then, of course, externally, we want to be consistent with how we act internally. And again, uh, this is something we always go back and forth on. What's a hit? No one yeah. knows numbers. People sort of know numbers. You basically say, if we're renewing a show, it's a hit. Um, I think the only big recent show that I can remember that you didn't renew was was uh, the Baz Luhrmann show. Yep, Get, Get Down, Down uh, Marco Polo. Marco Polo. So those and those were big bets. Those were a hundred million dollar, whatever the numbers were. They were big numbers, big. They bets. were a small percentage, like one percent of the total content budget. So they're big in absolute dollars. I mean, and there's no question. But you know, again, as a percentage, if anything, you know, what I push our content teams on is you should have more things that don't work out. You got to get more aggressive. And, you know, the, the, the drive towards conformity as you grow as a company is very substantial. So as a leader, you're always trying to get people to take risks, take bets, not be safe. And so we're doing more and more entertainment that's uh, somewhat crazy. And we'll see how that we, we have a, a series in Brazil that will be coming out later this year, Car Wash, um, that's about all the scandals uh, there. And then for those who follow Brazil politics will know that the scandals have continued. 
um, and taken a more serious uh, note with the current government, um, and yet we're right in the middle of it. And so that, that's a big risk in the political side. There's other risks that we, we take in other do you, areas. Do you, are you conscious about bringing in new blood, new perspectives to allow you guys to try new things? Uh, someone was telling me a story yesterday about when you moved from DVD to streaming, you basically took the DVD people out and replaced them with the stream people and sort of your executive. Yeah, except for Ted and I and stuff. Yeah, so you're yeah. still here. <laughs> so. um, but that was conscious, right? You said we want to bring we want to bring in people with a different perspective. Are you doing that sort of as you move into different kinds of programming? We, In our hiring, we're definitely trying to hire international people and, and then be more global. So a, a big thing for us is we were a domestic-only company for 15 years, and then you've got to retool a lot to really be effective globally. Um, interviewed you a bunch. Um, there are a bunch of questions that when I, I poll people, I say, what do you want to hear? Yeah. They're the questions I've asked you before. Okay. Well, we'll figure it out. So I won't them, roll my eyes. Go we'll, on. We'll, we'll do the speed round. Okay. Um, why aren't you doing sports? When are you going to do sports? Um, sports is really good in the moment, so you want to watch the game, but the afterlife of a given show is quite small, and that's different. We talked about binge viewing, of how it's a transformative experience. Um, it's hard to transform sports with the internet. I mean, you can carry it over the internet, but what does that do for you? Um, so think of it as the internet doesn't yet add much value to the sports experience. But you've got people paying a lot of money, you know exactly who they are, you can now afford expensive sports rights, why not do it anyway? Uh, our, again, our customers watch lots of other video. They watch videos on YouTube. We're not trying to replace that. They're going to watch videos on sports, MLB.tv, et cetera. So we're not trying to meet all needs. So Amazon's business strategy is super broad, meet all needs. I mean, the stuff that will be in Prime in five or ten years will be amazing, right? And so we can't try to be them. We're never going to be as good as them at what they're trying to be. What we can be is the emotional connection brand, like HBO or Netflix. So think of it as they're trying to be Walmart, we're trying to be Starbucks. So super focused on one thing that people are very passionate about. Uh, when are you gonna bring ads into Netflix? You could make so much money if you just brought in a little bit of advertising or you had shows that were sort of branded or sponsored. You know, like HBO, we're really committed to uh, an ad-free experience. Um, so no plans. No plans. Is there anything that could push you over the... Oh, they like it. This is a high-end audience, so you'd expect it. But what it, if like someone said, look, you can make this much more awesome programming, you can keep your prices down, because eventually you're going to have to raise prices again. There's a, it's, not, it's not just because you can make more money, you can do other stuff with that advertising money. Yeah, I mean, another way to look at it is, hey, Google and Facebook are super good at ad-supported ecosystems, and they've got incredible, uh, you know, insight and knowledge, uh, so that they might eventually be the leaders in ad-supported video. And so, again, you know, when we think structurally, we think we don't want to be the super broad play because we can't win against Amazon. We don't want to be the ad-supported play because how are we going to compete in the long term, you know, over 20 or 50 years with Facebook, Google, et cetera, because they're going to do, they're very good at ad-supported things generally. Talk about net neutrality. Last yep. time you were on the stage, you were in a big fight with Comcast um, over internet connection, but it's still the principles of net neutrality. Um, you, were, you were very much against the Comcast Time Warner cable merger. Um, now it looks like the net neutrality rules are going to be disposed of entirely or significantly rewritten. Um, you've also got AT&T and Time Warner merging. We don't hear you complaining loudly about either of those things. What, so what changed? 
Well, let's see, AT&T and Time Warner is not two networks getting together, so there's no increase in power that way. Um, I, I think really- But it's a distributor buying a, a content company. They can, they've said, we want to treat the content from yeah. this content company differently than we're gonna treat other stuff. So we think net neutrality is incredibly important. Um, it's not narrowly important to us because we're big enough to get the deals we want. Because that's the argument, right? And there's a good piece in The Verge that says the, the thing that changed is you guys have deals with basically all the pipe companies and you're big enough. That's right. Whatever happens to the rules, you'll be fine. That's right. And so um, where net neutrality is really important is the Netflix of 10 years ago. And it's important for society and it's important for innovation. It's important for entrepreneurs. So in that sense, it is really important. And you know, we're weighing in against it. We said we think net neutrality is very important. But you're not as loud. You're not yelling about it on Facebook. Uh, you're not, you're, yeah, no, that's you're not, fair. You're, you're not that's as fair. aggressive. It's not it. our primary battle at this point. Other people it is, and that's an important thing, and we're supportive through the industry association. But I think you're right that we don't have the special vulnerability to it, but it's still a really good thing. Now, whether Title II is the best way to get that, then there's a very technocratic argument, but there's not an effective substitute. But by and large, net neutrality is an accepted principle around the world. There's 100, well, there's 100 countries that don't have net neutrality laws, and they still follow the fundamental principles. So don't think about it as without the law, it's going to be devastation. It could be, so it's better to have the law, but it may be that all the ISPs just accept the principles and we get to go on with net neutrality. Um, it's just not enshrined formally. We'll see. Don't worry as much is what you're saying. We're, you're, we're fine, but everyone else is Honestly, probably going to be okay. Too. I, I think the Trump's FCC is going to unwind the rules no matter what anybody says. So th that's going to happen, and then we get to see what's, what's going to come out of that. Speaking of Trump, uh, the, the weekend that he introduced the, the first attempt at the travel ban, um, I don't know if you were the first, but it seemed like you were the first prominent tech executive, really any, any corporate executive, to say, this is a bad thing, posted on Facebook. Yep. Um, did you give any thought to the fact that you're the head of a public company and you were taking on the president and, and this was a controversial thing for you to say out loud? Well, look, we see it as taking on the policy, not the president. Um, our, said Trump's policy are bad for Netflix and that's right. bad for America. So that's the policy, right? You know, so Trump was the first word, though. <laughs> the policy is what we really care about, and that policy, which the courts have blocked, um, was really toxic. Uh, it's toxic to us. It's building a global company. We have employees from many of those countries that work at Netflix around the world now can't travel. Um, and it's, you know, in my view, it's anti-American to block out specific countries and then all of the people. So if there's specific terror risks, I'm all for safety and security. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of people like our employees or GE's employees that are global companies. So uh, at many levels, I thought that was, uh, you know, a wrong-headed policy, and we were willing to talk about it. Did you get any blowback from that? You've got, if you have 50 million customers in the U.S., 100 million uh, around the world, if you say something political, presumably some of them won't be happy with what you said. You know, I think that's probably true, but um, there's nothing that we noticed in the numbers or anything. Um, and, you know, again, we're not trying to pick sides uh, politically um, in the U.S. or in other countries. We're really trying to focus on certain policies that we think are positive. Um, national politics, international, down to local. Um, people were surprised to see that you were actively involved as a donor, at least, in the, was the LA school, LA school board, yep. LA school board race this spring. Why were you putting millions of dollars into that race? 
Well, I've been a supporter of uh, change in public education, providing more kids opportunity for almost 20 years now. You're pushing charters. Specifically charter schools as a vehicle to that. So I'm on the board of KIPP Charter Schools, which are about 200 schools uh, around the U.S. Uh, these are nonprofit public schools, um, mostly uh, uh, serving kids of color and giving them more opportunity. So they've been a, a very powerful force. The old L.A. school board was pretty anti-charter. Um, the new L.A. school board is pro all school public schools, both the district schools and charter. So it's a more inclusive attitude. But it's, so, but why go to L.A. specifically? Just, I mean, there's a, there's a charter. You're reporting on that one because we actually won, which is the surprise. Where no, it just came it, up too. I and, mean, and are, you, are you actively involved around the country, and we're just not seeing it? Yeah, like there was a Massachusetts ballot initiative supporting charter schools that I supported, and it lost by a big margin. Um, so there's some wins, some losses. So it's not L.A. specific. Not particularly, no. And, and what, what got you involved in schools as a... As a it's very random. I, I was right out of college. I was a Peace Corps teacher, uh, high school math in Swaziland, um, and then came back, got into computer science and um, doing companies and becoming a philanthropist. And that's the area then that I knew a little bit about. And so I joke that if the Peace Corps had sent me to be a fish farmer, I'd be working on agriculture policy today. Um, so it's, uh, it's somewhat just the accident of history. But then I think you focus on some areas and you really try to get good at understanding them. So I've been working in education reform, including being on the uh, State Board of Education in California uh, and other things to try to understand the breadth of the system. Most people who work in school districts are super thoughtful people, are very committed, and there's way too much polarization in the debate. Because I think there's a lot of people who do work in education, and a bunch of my family are in this, on this side, who say, well, if, when there's a Reed Hastings or a Bill Gates or someone from technology and a billionaire, and maybe they think they know what they're doing, but they really don't. They don't understand how the system works. There's a reason we do these things. How do you, how do you push back against that pushback? How do you say, no, we come in peace? Well, it's not really peace or war. It's really about serving the kids. So I would say, let's go look at some KIPP schools and see how they're doing. And, you know, I've also been a big donor of many of the other uh, charter school networks. And everyone can agree when the kids are doing well, the interest is being served. So it's really trying to focus on the ground, the common ground, which is providing kids opportunity. I'm going to open up to questions in a second, but I just wanted to circle back. I s said, not entirely facetiously, it looked fairly easy for you guys to get into original content, right? You spent a bunch of money, you gave it to people who knew how to make things, mm -hmm. like David Fincher, yep. Kevin Spacey, and they made good content. It didn't seem like it was that hard to get into entertainment. We're seeing Google, Facebook, Apple all sort of circle around the edge of it. They have a lot of resources, but they're not really making big bets. Apple's going to make a James Corden spin-off show. Why do you think those guys who want to do video, who want to do original content, are being so modest about these first steps? Well, I think Amazon's being so aggressive and spending billions of dollars yep. that you know you, you have to look at it if you're the next party wanting to get in is, okay, to get to leadership, I gotta get to Netflix, I gotta be able to beat Amazon at this, and I think that's a pretty scary prospect for most companies. For Facebook or Apple or Google, right? Billions of dollars, it would not be consequential for them to spend billions instead of a little bit of money on these things. It would not be consequential to spend billions. Yeah, I know. From the year lives to God. It's still pretty consequential, I promise you that. That. Do you have advice for them as they're as they're 
as their for our, for our, our, for your rivals, yeah. our competitors. No, I mean I think look, the the more that people get in, um, the more the talent uh, writers, directors uh, get work, and the more shows are created. And I think there's a lot more to be able to spend. I don't think we're anywhere near saturation any more than we are in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, or think of it as um, apps on your phone. You're on the you're on the board of Facebook. Yep, they're getting into video. Have you had to step out of any of these meetings? Is there a conflict yet? There's not a big conflict yet. They're not doing, uh, you know, House of Cards. We're not bidding on the same shows. Um, so not a big deal there. But with Amazon, with Apple, with all of the others, you know, the big tech firms, they're all trying different things. I mean, Amazon is also trying uh, sports. They've got an NFL deal. Yep. Facebook has an MLB deal. Um, so lots of people are trying to figure out the big picture, which is, Linear TV we've had for almost 100 years. It has been an epic achievement and in increased entertainment over the last 100 years. And now everybody realizes in the next 20 years, it's all gonna move to the internet. It's all gonna be on demand. And so you've got this massive ecosystem that's going to change, and then everyone's trying to figure out, okay, what piece of that I might own and investing in various ways. And you're not gonna offer them free advice. Questions from the audience. Steve? Hi, um, great, great session. Hi, Reid. Um, so, uh, Mary Meeker had a slide a little bit about um, digital businesses ended up going uh, offline. I'm thinking about uh, Amazon's bookstores, which sort of takes their business model there. You said a couple things about theaters, but I'm just wondering, what would a Netflix theater look like? And is that something that you might want to con consider uh, as, as something that you do in the way Amazon's doing bookstores? Absolutely, and Netflix theaters in your living room with a 60-inch LG <laughs> OLED 4K HDR TV. I mean, these TVs now are amazing. They're well beyond the visual quality and the dynamic range, the color range in the new TVs are much better than a movie theater. But, but you, you don't use, you think you... <laughs> Not you, interested. So you're, you're, ruling out, you're ruling out moving to that community. But, but, you, but you are getting, you are stepping out of movies and, and video and you're going to get into licensing, right? I'm going to be able to buy a Stranger Things pajama set, I assume, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're venturing out. Okay. Question over here. Good morning. Pam Dillon, uh, Ring at Software Development. My question, I'd like to, you've been talking a lot about behind the camera content development. I'd like to go uh, to the other side of the camera, the personalization experience, uh, the user. Can you talk a little bit about how you're creating context, how you're going to be developing the personalization layer? Because you guys have been leading there as much as you've been leading around content development, just this idea of households and that two people have two different preferences, have two different accounts. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that developing over time? Sure. I mean, entertainment taste is incredibly broad. So if we polled all of you for your top five shows in the last year, you'd, you'd see no uniformity. And so the key in uh, music, uh, in video, is to really try to do a better and better machine learning job on the data to try to present you with content that you're going to love. And so uh, for Google, the dream, the I'm feeling lucky dream, is that you don't have to look at the 10 blue links. You can just type in something, and the first result is always the one that's right. And they're not quite there, but it represents that dream. It's very similar for us. We want to be able to have such good personalization that you turn Netflix on and just start starts playing, and it's the right thing. And in some ways, that dream's impossible to reach because you all have different moods, you want control, but it's what we're trying to get to is like there's three or four choices and they're all like, oh my God, I gotta watch that show. And so, you know, we're going towards that. And I think all of us are learning together about um, the different statistical techniques that can get to uh, better and better results. Question here. 
Great. Uh, I have a question about uh, net neutrality. So a few years ago, when it looked like net neutrality was going to be removed, you guys got into a whole bunch of different fights with the carriers. And so it seems as though if net neutrality is removed now, a whole bunch of smaller companies will get into similar fights. We know exactly what will happen. What happened to you will happen to other companies, education companies, IoT companies. Um, so I guess my, my question is, do you, are you really saying that you won't be as involved because it will affect other companies and not you? Um, I would say that we're very supportive of net neutrality, but you're right that our commercial interest, we've got long-term contracts, we've got these other things, and we had to carry the water when we were growing up and we were small, and now other companies have to be on that leading edge. Now, we're still supportive of it, we're fighting it through the association, but you're right that it's not our primary risk profile at this point, and our primary risks are things around global and around uh, taxation and other things you know, in other countries. And so it's natural that a company moves on to the battles that it's currently facing. And we're, again, we're still supportive on that battle. But it's really the next round of companies through the Internet Association that are on the cutting edge of it. But in the short term, I don't think there's much they're going to do. I think the FCC is going to unwind Title II. And then what we have to do is see, can the ISPs, without formal regulation, all respect net neutrality? And I think through the battles of the last 10 years, many of them also realized that the long-term interest is in peace and in uh, honoring those net neutrality principles. But there's no legal guarantee, so we'll have to see. Last question from Mark here. Uh, Mark Mahaney. Uh, Reed, as you go from maybe half of the U.S. broadband market to hopefully 75% one day, do you have to do something materially different in terms of content and marketing? That 50% that hasn't signed up for Netflix, even though they've known about it for a long time, are they going to require something dramatically different in terms of an offering? I don't think it's dramatically different. I mean, when we were 20 million, people said, well, HBO only got to 30. Isn't there a wall there? And then we just kept on growing and growing and making the shows better. So I would say it's mostly do what we do now and just do it better. Um, continue to make incredible shows, movies, give you more reasons to join, make the streaming great. There's more and more sales of smart TVs. So it's, I, I think it'll be continuous. You guys are, more are, of the same. are, though, intentionally saying, all right, we sort of had a blue state HBO-like offering. We started with House of Cards. And you've intentionally said, here's an Ashton Kutcher show. Here's stuff that might appeal to people in red states for, for shorthand for mm -hmm. now. That's, that's intentional, right? Saying as we've got bigger, we're going to go after other sectors we haven't gone after before. I think we've gone after lots of sectors and lots of demographics, uh, especially on a global basis, um, but also including the U.S. Um, and then it's just not merchandise to you. So you might be an HBO-style viewer, so you're just not going to see much of that. Right. Um, but someone who uh, watches faith-based content, we'll see a lot of faith-based content on Netflix today and, and have for a long time. Good. Great. This is great. Thank you for great. your time. Thank you all. Thanks, Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 